Okay, I start with a disclaimer. I've been fairly sick for a couple of days and congestion and throat, so I may have a coughing fit somewhere in the middle of all this. So uh, during this first session, we're going to do two sessions tonight, um, and I want this to be more of a discussion. I kind of want to find out where you're at and get a, a feel for the, the room and see what you know uh, on the subject of eschatology. And so... Um, I want to hit a, a few different areas. So what do you think of when you hear the term eschatology? I want to urge everybody to just speak out. You don't have to. Last days, okay. I'll just put some of these up here. What else? What else? Okay, now I always have to try to spell that. That'll do. I always have to think about it. I'm thankful for like, all right, what else? Let's break it down a little bit more. What do you, what other kinds of, what other terms and words tend to show up? Okay. Jerry, he's shy. Okay. What else? Okay. What's that? Okay. What else? Pan, yeah, we'll get to that one. That's a good one. Y'all know about that one, don't you? Oops. What else? We're missing one. Anything else? Okay. Nobody said that one, so I'll put it up there. I remember Burke Shade saying he was gonna, he was going to have a sequel to the book Left Behind. It's going to be Left Behind, Right Behind, uh, <laughs> No Behind, Left Behind. So, yes. 
All right, well, that gives us, we've got a lot of vocabulary here. I, it did remind me I saw something yesterday that said, uh, I think it's going to, because of the high gas prices, is why all the armies that, uh, in Armageddon are going to be riding horses. So, uh, um, so there's a lot here, and, and so most of us have heard most, if not all, of these terms. And if we started, if I started asking you to define them, there's certainly some of them would be pretty easy and others might be more difficult. Uh, but vocabulary is always uh, very important for any subject. Uh, we need to know what we're talking about here. And so what I want to do in this opening thing is take a few of these and talk about uh, getting some conception of what they are. I think we'll, uh, one, one we didn't talk about here, we have dispensationalism. But we also have covenant uh, theology, so dispensational theology and covenant theology are two theological systems, are ways in which we go about looking at the Bible, and, that, and that's going to make a difference in how we start to interpret the Bible and understand the Bible, which of those, they can't both be true because they, they take different uh, positions. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the pre-mill, uh, post-mill, ah-mill, and pan-mill. Who knows what pan-mill is? It'll all pan out in time. That's when you say, I don't really want to understand any of this. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Uh, just so Jesus comes back, it'll all pan out in time. So that one's easy. But we'll look at the others and try to make sure we have some sense of what the differences are. Um, so... Uh, We'll also we need to talk about a philosophy of history. How do we look at history? Because when we're talking about eschatology, if we were in the book of Genesis, uh, is, the esch is eschatology, in terms of thinking about future things, that's different than it is right now, right? Because some of the things that were future uh, in Genesis have come to pass. So... The question, so that's another big question is about timing, what things have already taken place that Scripture talks about, and what things are yet to take place. So this is where all our debates come from, our discussions. Now, so let's just, let's start with um, the, uh, the theological items to get some big picture here. So... And I'm just going to put covenant theology and dispensational theology. What is theology? Study of God. And in this case, uh, we're, what we break it down and say we're, we want to know what God says about eschatology. We want to know what he thinks about it. What has he said? What has he revealed? Because uh, most of you have heard me do this. How much do you know about the past? Almost nothing of everything there is to know. How much do you know about the present? Even less. How much do you know about the future? Nothing at all. That's, a, that's an epistemology problem. We have pea brains, and we live in a massive universe, and we know almost nothing at all in ourselves. So we need somebody who does know everything about the past, present, and future to tell us. That's God. He knows everything, past, present, and future. He's not going to forget anything. He's not going to learn something tomorrow. And he knows how all those things relate to each other. 
So when he speaks, if he speaks, when he speaks, he, we can't know what he, everything he knows because we don't have any place to put it. We don't have enough room. But we can know, we can know what he's pleased to tell us. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things uh, belong to God, but the re- things revealed belong to us and our sons. So God has revealed, he has told us, things, and if you think about it, most of what you know anyway, somebody told you, right? Um, Jason, have you ever been to Japan? Does Japan exist? How do you know? Somebody told you, okay? Could have been your mother, could have been a coffee table book, could have been a PBS special. Somebody told you and you believed them. Um, You say, I saw pictures. any, any number of things. So most of what you know, you know because somebody you trusted told you. So I'm trying to get us in a place where we say, you know what, I don't, I don't, I'm not as smart maybe as I think I am, and I need God to tell me what his plan is and not make uh, too many assumptions about it. So as we approach the Bible, uh, so let me ask an apologetics question. Do the facts speak... Do the facts speak for themselves? Whatever facts we're talking about. So the heavens declare the glory of God. So should we be able to look at the things made and deduce the existence of God? Romans 1, we should. But why don't we? Romans 1. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We're sinners. We we look at those same facts and we interpret them in a different way. We don't want there to be a holy God that we're accountable to. We want to be God. We exchange the truth for a lie and we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So we have this, so somebody described it like this. If you were riding in your car, listening to the radio and it was very staticky and you didn't, couldn't really make it out, and you got home and you called up the radio station and complained about their broadcast. It could be them, right? What else could it be? Your receiver. There's something wrong. The, the signal may be just fine. What God is sending out and what God is saying, the facts do speak for themselves, but the facts also have to be interpreted. And our job in theology, with, with, since God has revealed himself to us in his word, is to find out what he says about the world we live in. What he says about himself what he says about us, what he says about history, what he says about the future. And so our thoughts are not his thoughts, our ways are not his ways, as far apart as the heavens are from the earth, but our job as followers of Christ is to submit to him and stop trying to determine good and evil or truth on our own and go back to where we were supposed to be and say, Lord, your word is what tells us how to understand the world. So that's what we want to do, regardless of the subject, and tonight's subject is eschatology, which uh, really deals with whatever events are leading up to the end of the world. There are things, or subjects beyond that. We talk about the resurrection and the intermediate state and heaven and hell and uh, the new heavens and new earth, those things. That's a different category. So here we're we're going to talk about these things. So these two big schools of theology 
in the Protestant world, at least. What are the fundamental differences here is how we approach, first of all, the Old and New Testaments. So, what is the basic principle of covenant theology in terms of the relationship between the Old and the New Testament? Okay. And dispensationalism? Yeah. So let's talk about what that means. What, is, what do we mean continuity? Okay, so there's one, I like to say there's one plan, right? Um, from, and so he's dealing, he's unfolding his story, his, his work, his plan uh, from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. The Bible is one unified book. Do changes take place between the old and the new? Yes. Give me, give me an example or two of a change that takes place. Again, if you understand covenant theology, what kind of changes take place between the old and the new? Okay. So, sacrifice, sacrifices... Um, so we had blood of bulls and goats and other sacrifices, grain offerings, all were pointing to Christ. Those were the, uh, so that's, how do we know that change took place? God told us. We, the Bible itself tells us uh, there's no longer a need to sacrifice bulls and goats because Christ is the Lamb of God. The other thing would be, uh, I won't write all this up, the, the priesthood. We don't need priest. We have Christ who's our high priest. We don't need a temple or a tabernacle because Christ is the temple. And by the way, uh, the Bible also tells us that because we're in Christ, we too are sacrifices, we too are priests, and we too are temples of the Holy Spirit. So that's a fundamental change, but in principle, all those, it's consistent, right? Because there were temples, priests, and sacrifices in the Old Testament. Now they've been subsumed. I like to think of it as going from kindergarten to grad school. Um, they're related. And that's the argument in the book of Hebrews. Why would you want to go back to elementary school and sacrifice animals now that Christ is here? That's, that's crazy. You don't go backwards. There is a progress here in history. So, and we'll come back to more in history in a moment, but so in the dispensational system, there is a view that uh, God has his, uh, so somebody else tell me, what, what do we have, uh, what's going on in the Old Testament primarily? We're, we're going to be oversimplifying this, by the way. There's lots of nuances in these systems. But, uh. Okay, so... We see a different manifestation of God. That's one point of view. Uh, what about, um, uh, so let's talk about what are the differences in a dispensational view between the Old and New Testament. What did the, what did the I'm sorry, go ahead. Okay. Different ways. What, what is that, Will? Circumcision, baptism, a different um, 
obviously Passover and Lord's Supper. Um, God deals with people in a different way. So in the Old Testament, in a dispensational system, how were people saved? Keep the law? That, that's a common idea. And again, there are a lot of nuances on this. I don't want to misrepresent or oversimplify. But basically, um, these were rebellious people. They, they had hearts of stone. That image is put forth that the law was this kind of oppressive thing that uh, you just couldn't ever live up to and always fell short of. But what happens in the New Testament? Right, so in the Old Testament, the law is written on stone. In the New Testament, it's written on your heart. So the way I like to think of it is, um, in a dispensational view of the Bible, is the New Testament replaced the Old Testament. Uh, again, slight oversimplification, but uh, we would read the Old Testament because it informs us and gives us history and background, but you would hear something like this. Unless it's repeated in the New Testament, it is no longer valid. So whatever laws or things were in the Old Testament in a dispensational system would say, uh, unless it's repeated in the New Testament, it doesn't apply to Christians because... It's like tearing up an old contract. That's the old covenant. Now we have a new covenant. You're going to say something? Yeah. Yes. We would say everything is binding unless the New Testament explicitly says it's not. Okay. So that's a fundamental difference. So... If I, say I had my son and I told him, uh, your job is to take out the trash, and he's eight, and now he turns 12, and I say, okay, now I want you to mow the yard, and he stops taking out the trash. And I said, what, what's the deal? He said, well, you told me to mow the grass. You didn't tell me, uh, you didn't have, you have to relist everything. So, no, there's an assumption that it's, it's still standing unless... So, for example, we know that Jesus is the sacrifice. We know that he's the priest. We know that he's the tabernacle, and Hebrews tells us that. Yeah, David? Yes. So, so oftentimes uh, in dispensationalism, it's described, uh, the church age is described as a parenthesis in history. So God was dealing with the Jews, they're rebellious, uh, Christ comes, they reject Christ. And so God basically says, plan B, uh, we're going to have a time out, we're going to now, I'm going to focus on the Gentiles. And once they're in, once they've been brought in at some point in the future, I'm going to, and there's different, we'll, we'll get into this in a minute because there are different versions of dispensationalism, but in, in uh, well, in dis, actually in dispensationalism, the Christians are going to be raptured out and then God's going to come back and deal with the Jews again and, and return, and so he'll go back. But these are two separate 
methods and systems dealing with two groups of people in different ways. Yeah, I, I've not heard that term, but uh, or adopted would be Romans 11, right? Grafted in. Um, so, um, whereas, um, so th- th- I, again, I don't want to spend too much time on this. I'm gonna get bogged down here. I want to get to the eschatology part of this, but you can see how if you have this, so eschatology is just one aspect of interpreting the Bible that you bring these systems to. So how you interpret Old Testament prophecy, for example, is going to be impacted by how you understand the authority. So I'm going to give an example. Psalm 2 is a great example of that. So, uh, and we will look at that more closely in the second talk. But is that talking about Jesus? Is that talking about what's coming? In the, is that eschatological? Or is that something that's already come and gone and has no application because it's in the Old Testament? And yet... Psalm 2, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And so one of the things, um, if we're going to debate about the authority of the Old Testament for New Testament, you'll hear something like, we are New Testament Christians or New Testament believers. So what does the New Testament say about the authority of the Old Testament for New Testament Christians? Yes. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. And when that was written, there wasn't a New Testament. And when the Bereans searched the Scriptures daily to see if what the Apostle Paul was saying was true, they were searching the Old Testament. So Jesus is quoting most often from Deuteronomy. Um, the Apostles are quoting Old Testament to justify and substantiate. In fact, what did Jesus tell his Apostles uh, on the road to Emmaus and thereafter? He says he opened up all the uh, Moses and the prophets uh, to show them how all of it was talking about him. And so, absolutely, uh, the new. T- if we say, okay, let's just start with the New Testament. Let's just say only the New Testament, for the sake of argument, is our authority. What does it say about the Old Testament? I think that settles the argument. So, yeah, somebody say something. Yes, there's an old saying, some of you heard it, you know that, the, uh, the new and the old is contained, and the old by the new is explained. So, um, that's why Jesus could open up the Old Testament and say, see, I've been here all along, right? Let me explain it to you. So, the new, the, the old, the new in the old is contained. Everything about Jesus, everything, the whole the Old Testament's all about Jesus, and the New Testament is the commentary that helps us understand that. It's inspired. I'd argue without the book of Hebrews, you couldn't make sense of the, whole, the Bible. I mean, that one book is critical to understanding all of this. We don't tend to think of Hebrews as a book about eschatology, but it's very critical. Yes, Daniel? Well, I think, I think everything is. Um, well, again, your method, understanding your methods. If you and I have an argument about the size of this room, it's a rectangle. Uh, if we take that part out, let's just say we're doing... But we have, both have a stick, and we call it a yardstick, but they're two different lengths. 
How long is it going to take us to agree on the side? But we're both calling them yardsticks. How long is it going to take us to resolve who's right? We're never going to because we have two different standards. So that's why settling these fundamental issues of how we interpret the Bible is so critical. Now, if we have the same length yardstick, we might still get a wrong answer because we, as my math teacher frequently told me, you made, uh, uh, was it, uh, errors uh, in your, what's that? Careless errors. <laughs> in, in, in woodworking, they say measure twice, cut once. I, I usually have to measure four times, uh, and I still mess up. So we can make mistakes. It's, we're still human, and we still have to wrestle with these things. But if, we're, if we start out with fundamentally different points of view of what Scripture is and how we're see it and understand it, we're not going to get the same answers at the end. All right, I want to move more specifically uh, to the eschatological schools. I have a handout here. Um, if a couple of you would help pass these out here. I think three guys would be enough here. So that's a, just a uh, summary sheet of the different views. Um, so where do we hear about the millennium in the Bible? Revelation 20, anywhere else? So it sure, this is something that sure gets a lot of attention for only having one mention. Uh, kind of like Melchizedek, who has two, two mentions, uh, but until you get to Hebrews. Uh, but he's critical. Uh, so what, what, do we, what does Revelation 20 say about the millennium? Somebody want to grab that real quick? I don't remember the verse. Uh, read that. The one that talks about the millennium. <laughs> the thousand years. That's good enough. So Satan's going to be bound for a thousand years. That's the reference to the millennium. And so then the questions arise, when is that going to happen? What is that going to look like? And we can, if we just you know, read that passage and start making some assumptions about it, we can get into some trouble pretty quick. That's, uh, Roy's going to be talking to us about uh, prophetic literature and, and how we should handle that. But... Um, so some of the other differences we're going to talk about is how we interpret Scripture. We'll see that at the bottom of this page in a minute. But let's, let's just talk about these basic schools of, of millennialism, of es which has to do with how, how do we handle this statement about this thousand-year period, and what are, what's the characteristic of it primarily? Satan is bound. So... Sometimes what people fail to do is ask the next question, what is he bound from? 
deceiving the nations. Hmm. Is he bound from all activity? I'm not sure what you're talking about. Satan falling? Oh, I don't know that that's a necessarily a reference. We'll come back to the thousand. Nathan, are you going to be dealing with this tomorrow, the thousand years in the book of Revelation? I don't want to step in your turf. Okay. Okay. So the question is, is that, is that literally 1,000 years? Like, okay. Um, is the devil bound? Is he tied up, gagged uh, in a room somewhere? He can't do anything? Or can he still do some stuff? Can you think of another instance where Satan was limited in what he could do? Job. So think of a dog on a tether, you know. Uh, how long that, you know, you can't go everywhere, but you can go somewhere. So Revelation says Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years from, and he's, bound, he's limited in deceiving the nations. What happened when, I want you to think historically and biblically about an event where we might have seen that already happen. How about Pentecost? What happened starting at Pentecost? Think of Acts 1.8. Jesus said, you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then the rest of the book of Acts is the unfolding, the beginning of that story, where where, where was the gospel primarily contained prior to that? Israel. All the sacrificial system was a picture of Christ and, and the need for atonement for sin. And they were to be priests to the nations. What did God say Abraham's descendants were going to do? They were going to be a blessing to whom? To the nations. But up, in, up until we get to... Christ coming and his ascension and now he's sitting on the throne and now his body, the church begins to operate and spread out because Jesus, even when he was on the earth, where did he travel? Pretty limited, right? But now his hands, his feet, his body is spreading out all over the world and the gospel is going everywhere. And in fact, I can prove it because you're sitting here tonight 2,000 years later. It's still doing that. What did, he, what did Jesus say his kingdom was going to be like? Leaven. And how much was it going to leaven? The whole lump. What is the whole lump? The world. So I would like to suggest, um, just as a hint, that uh, one interpretation of the millennium is that uh, Satan's could no longer deceive entire nations. And what did we see very early? I've been preaching through the book of Acts, so you guys know this. What do we start seeing right away after that initial day of Pentecost and all the 3,000 Jewish men are converted? What do we start seeing after that? Who, who gets converted? What's that? Roman officials, 
Samaritans, Ethiopian eunuch, uh, and yeah. So we just see, that's what, that's what those stories are, right? One after another is we see the gospel going to uh, different cities, different countries, different nationalities, races, men and women. Uh, we see this. In fact, what's happening in the history of the covenants is they're getting more and more glorious. Think of it as God starts with Adam and then Noah and then um, um, Abraham or Moses, uh, yeah, Abraham and Moses and David. Each of these covenants bring in a different dimension, kingdom, uh, uh, the law, uh, all those things. But when we get to Christ, think of a flower that's been opening up. And now we have the full bloom. It's all organic. It's all connected. And now here it is. Now what? Now is it just a matter of getting everybody in the lifeboats? So, Because Jesus has gone to heaven and he's up waiting for us to finish gathering everybody and getting them in the lifeboats so we can, he can come back and take us to heaven? That is kind of the view that's popular. Um, so let's look at each of these very quickly. What's that? Okay. That's right. Premillennialism. Christ will come before the millennium, which is conceived of as a literal 1,000 years of righteousness and peace, during which Christ will personally reign from the throne of David in Jerusalem. There are two forms of premillennialism, which must be distinguished from each other. Historic premillennialism, uh, so-called because it has a long history in the church, and dispensational premillennialism, which began in the 1830s. A lot of people don't know that. A woman named Margaret MacDonald had a vision, and that's where that started, and she came to America. Uh, she was part of the Plymouth Brethren. And from there, between the Schofield Reference Bible and a whole series of prophecy conferences, it took off uh, in America. Uh, so it's a fairly new thing, and yet it is the dominant view. If you're in the evangelical world, whether you know it or not, you are influenced by this you, yes, sir. Was there a time when, when people, when people who were post-millennials before that? Absolutely, yeah. There are uh, any number of combinations of these things, of whether it's literal. We're going to talk about the issue of how we interpret literal. We want to interpret Scripture literally, but it's not all to be taking, taken literal. God owns the cattle on how many hills? Okay, only a thousand, right? Okay, so you see we have to be careful how we deal with language. Uh, Roy, are you going to deal with some of that tomorrow or not? Maybe not, okay. All right, we're not, we don't have, look, eschatology is a huge, so yeah, Nathan. Well, I, I'm going to, I will address that a little bit in the uh, next talk uh, because I think what happens is, I'm going to make a comment, you can't sell books or conferences uh, if you're telling people something's going to happen 500 years from now. But if you, if you can gin up uh, interest in this could happen next week or in your lifetime or, you know, a year and a half from now, uh, you can certainly get a lot of attention. And, of course, I may as well, I'm gonna, well, I'm going to wait. I've got a humorous thing to hand out, but it would, I'm going to wait. Um, so 
you don't need to remember all this, that's why I gave you the sheet, but historic premillennialism says the rapture, that is the, the taking God's people out of this world, um, and the second coming are simultaneous events. That's at the end of history, at the end of this thousand uh, uh, years, uh, there's no significant interval of time between them. Those who hold this view are sometimes called post-tribulationalists because uh, Jesus talks about a great tribulation in the book of Matthew, uh, Matthew 24 and 25. And so they say, we're going to all go, all the Christians are going to go through the tribulation and then the rapture will come and the final judgment and so forth. Uh, dispensational premillennialism says the rapture precedes the second coming. You've seen the drawings of people flying out of their cars, and uh, that's the book left behind. Um, it was very popular, millions of dollars. You know, you could buy left behind pajamas. Um, uh, I'm not kidding. Um, I'm hoping I wasn't going to leave my pajamas behind, but uh, um, some of you may have seen Nate Wilson's. Uh, uh, parody of that. Um, so, <laughs> I probably shouldn't say that, but uh, I'll give an example. There's one I can't tell, but I remember like the rapture came and so people were gone and like their dentures are left because that's not, you know, they're fake. So, yeah, Nathan. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Yes, there, there's lots of books on any, any, any of these views you want to take up. And that's part of the problem is it gets really confusing. And um, even here, we're trying to uh, cram all this into 45 minutes and we're running out of time. But it's, uh, so dispensationalists say uh, the rapture comes before the second coming, a significant interval of time between them. Pre-tribulationalists say there'll be seven years, and then there are the mid-tribulationalists say it'll be three and a half years. But these are literal years. I mean, these are, again, that's their view of the millennium is these are to be taken as actual a thousand years, seven years, three and a half years. Um, and that is one of those, the dispensational premillennialism has been the dominant eschatological view in the evangelical world for, in my lifetime, anyway really since the, probably the early 1900s is when those prophecy conferences in the Schofield. Schofield Reference Bible was kind of the first study Bible that came out, and it had all these dispensational notes. So you, you, opened, you bought the Bible, and they gave a lot of those Bibles away. So you had commentary there. That, that's, why, that's why it caught on so much. That was what you were given. That's really the only view you were given. Uh, Postmillennialism, Christ will come after the millennium, which is a symbolic period of time between the first and second comings of Christ. So it's not a literal thousand years. In the Bible, a thousand, like cattle on a thousand hills, 
represents a complete period of time. And there's other numerology in the Bible that's symbolic like that. During uh, this period, the majority of people will eventually be converted to Christ, which will bring about an era of righteousness and peace. So again, this picture of the kingdom being like leaven, that's leavening the whole lump. So uh, as we march through history, God is collecting his people historically from all over the world into his church. So we have the church uh, militant, uh, which is what we are. We're here active and the church eschatological at the end of time when all the people, all the saints from all times have been gathered together in one. Uh, Amillennialism, Christ will come after the millennium, which is symbolic of the entire period between the first and second coming. So in that sense, it's like postmillennialism, except they have a different view of the nature of the millennium. They say during this period, the, uh, the proportion of believers and unbelievers will remain about the same as it is now. Uh, the millennium is not a period of righteousness and peace on earth, hence the name ah, millennial, or no millennium, really. It's basically two separate, you got the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world, and they coexist, and sometimes one's up, another one's down, uh, and that's going to be, it's going to be like that until Christ returns. Um, schools of interpretation, uh, historicists record, uh, regards the prophecy of Revelation as a description of historical events from John's day to the end of time. Big debate over when the book of Revelation was written. That really is critical. Because if it was written after 70 AD, as some have contended, then it can't be talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD. But if it was written prior to 70 AD, as I would contend it is, uh, then and we began to read it and say, what happened? All right, what happened in 70 AD? Jerusalem was destroyed. What did Jesus what did he tell his disciples when they were looking at the temple? What did he say was going to happen? And when did he say it would happen? In their generation, not one stone would be left on another. They couldn't believe it. This is a massive, uh, you know, building that was, it was like one of the seven, you know, seven wonders of the world. It was, and it was going to be raised. Yes, and so, uh, so again, when you, if you think of Matthew, by the way, I'm, I'm jumping all over it. Matthew 24 and 25 are basically a mini version of the book of Revelation. Um, so, uh, futurists regard the prophecy of Revelation, at least from chapter 4 on, as yet to be fulfilled, uh, and that is predicting the events surrounding the second coming of Christ at the end of human history, so we're still looking for the Antichrist and so I know in my lifetime, I've heard many uh, announcements as to who the Antichrist is. I remember specifically Henry Kissinger uh, was one, for those old enough to remember who that is. Um, idealists regard the visions in Revelation not as depicting specific historic events, but rather the ongoing struggle of all ages between good and evil, the kingdom of God, and the forces of darkness. In other words, it's, it's kind of an allegory of history that shows up over and over and then a preterist view regards the prophecy of Revelation as being largely fulfilled. Revelation 20, 11 through 15, the resurrection and the final judgment yet to be fulfilled. Uh, in either, so that was parenthetical. 
So Revelation has largely been fulfilled in either the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 or the fall of Rome or a combination of both. So Ken Gentry describes the book of Revelation as the divorce of Israel. God brings a covenant lawsuit against them. He judges them. And then when he's finished with them, he judges Rome, which represents the world. What, who judged Jesus? Israel and Rome. They hung him on a cross. Rome would do that, right? Strip him naked, beat him to a pulp, and hang him up to show the world that no one challenges Rome. Who called for his death, even though Pilate said he was innocent? The Jews. So these two forces come together to judge Jesus. They put him on trial. And what we see in the book of Revelation is God's answer to that trial. Yes. Yes. So if your view is that, thank you, that was good. The, the, if your view is that the book of Revelation, for example, is mostly has been fulfilled primarily in 70 AD, if you come to something like a, a discussion of the Antichrist in the number 666, um, Ken Gentry, I think, has made a compelling argument historically that uh, Nero Kaiser, uh, Caesar, Nero, was the Antichrist that his, the Hebrew letters for his name add up, Hebrew letters had numeric value, add up to 666. And it was code. It was a way of writing about it uh, so that, you know, because they didn't want to say Nero. Uh, so it's kind of like let the hearer understand. Everybody knew uh, in the Christian world what that was referring to. So, but if, you, if your view is this is written after 70 AD, in 96 AD, I think some have dated it as late as 96, if I recall. Somebody can correct me if I'm wrong there. I think that's true. Um, then that wouldn't have anything to do with what happened in 70 AD. It would still be future. The problem is, book Revelation starts out by saying what in the first chapter? It says it twice. When, when does the book of Revelation say all these things are going to happen? Soon. The time is at hand. Um, and that means in the original Greek, very soon. So if we're going to interpret the book of Revelation literally, and it says these are going to happen soon, that doesn't mean 2,000 years from now. In fact, it says don't close this book. Daniel, close your book. It's going to be a while. Don't close this book. You're going to need it. And it's a revelation. It's not hidden. It's a revealing of what's going on. All right, so here's the deal. I'm going to pass out one handout just for fun here. I, by the way, I brought some extra copies of my bibliolist of books if you're interested, if you didn't have that. This is just, uh, if you're a dispensationalist, I apologize ahead of time. Um, 
But I, I read, anybody ever see the magazine, The Wittenberg Door? It used to be around years ago. It was, a, it, it was kind of the first credenda agenda. Uh, and they, uh, Nathan, you would have loved it because of their cartoons. This is one of them. Anybody ever see Larkin's dispensational chart? There's like an entire book of a chart. You need a degree in engineering to follow it, of all the details of eschatology. And this is, somebody took Larkin's chart and made their own version. Sorry, the print's so small. But it is uh, a lot of fun. I particularly like uh, somewhere in there how Lindsay's um, Porsche is raptured. Um, so anyway, that's just for fun. You can look at that later. Um, I'm going to come back and get into the subject of postmillennialism a little better. I, I feel like, you know, this has just been a real flyover uh, in a really big subject, but I want to, hopefully it will stimulate you to read and think and uh, challenge maybe some aspects that you might not have thought about before. Let's pray. Father, uh, bless us now as we take a break and uh, as we try to deal with a really, really big subject in a hurry. Uh, motivate us to read, to study, to think, to pray, and to honor you. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's some refreshments and coffee. We'll take about a 10-minute break and come back.